after dinner speakers like to tell these little stories about how poor we were. You've heard them, I'm sure. Lydell Sims calls them poor mouth stories. You, I was so poor when I was growing up that I used to have to walk two miles to get to a dirt road. You know those kind of stories. We were so poor that I thought the guy stand, sitting down on the corner with that little tin cup had two dimes and a nickel in it were, was one of those rich guys that mother used to talk about. We were so poor that one Christmas, uh, Daddy went outside and shot the gun in the air and came in and told us that Santa Claus had killed himself and he wouldn't be coming to see us. I bet you're thinking right now some of those poor mouth stories that you could top that with. But I've noticed that the people who talk about being poor aren't poor. For poverty is a serious matter when you're poor or when you're God. It was a serious matter to him. To come to terms with the God of the Scripture is to develop a concern for the poor. The Old Testament law was explicit about how the people of God were to treat those who were poor in the Hebrew commonwealth. And so prophet after prophet rose to warn against the neglect of the impoverished. And a typical scripture is this cry of Isaiah, What mean ye that you break my people to pieces and grind the faces of the poor? According to Luke, the poor were very special in the eyes of God. These words Jesus spoke at the commencement of his public ministry were a direct quotation from Isaiah's prophecy. And the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. The Greek word poor appears 35 times in the New Testament, 20 times in the synoptic gospel alone. And Jesus went so far as to say that a ministry to the poor was a ministry to Him. When you come to terms with the God of the Scripture, you develop a concern for the poor. But who are the poor? Poverty wears a variety of faces. How do you discern poverty? The poor are those who do not have the necessary furnishings of life, food, clothing, and shelter. If you want to depict poverty, you draw hallowed eyes and bloated stomachs and stillborn hopes. Poverty is a brown taste in your mouth that never goes away. Poverty is having your children beg in vain for toys and games that other children have. Poverty is putting off going to the doctor or the dentist until the last minute, if then. Poverty is waking up on a cold morning and wondering if there's going to be any hot water or heat. Poverty is making do with second-hand clothes and furniture that someone else has thrown away. Poverty is a gnawing in your stomach that lines the face and, and stoops the frame. 
Poverty is the loss of self-respect and an incapacity to hope. And the dimensions of poverty on a world scale are ominous. I want you to imagine this morning a city the size or a little bit larger than New York City. And everybody in the city is a child. That's how many children will die this year of hunger. Imagine a nation of 800 million people, slightly larger than the population of India. That's how many people are hungry all the time. Imagine a crowd of 40,000 people, a pretty good-sized crowd at a professional football game. That's how many people will starve to death today. Your garbage disposal eats better than 30% of the world's population. Of every ten children, three will load their plate today and throw away what they don't want. Two will eat one meal and barely survive. Three will fill themselves on bread and water. Two will die, one from dysentery and the other from pneumonia because they don't have a strength to ward it off. In the last five years, more people have died from starvation than were killed in all of the wars, revolutions, and murders in the last century. Imagine a nation of 600 million people, about two and a half times the size of the United States. That's how many people in this world work for incomes of less than $50 a year. Imagine a city like Hiroshima that was bombed out in World War II by the A-bomb. That's how many folks will starve to death in the next three days. And imagine all of these people looking up at you and asking, do you have anything to eat? Arise and pray in the night at the beginning of the watches and pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord, and lift up your hands to Him, cries Jeremiah, for your children who faint from hunger at the head of every street. But we have a way of not listening to the unpleasant sounds. Someone has defined noise as unwanted sound. And we have a way of treating as noise the cries of the needy that rise up from this earth. It sure is hard to watch a special on television concerning the starving in Bangladesh, isn't it? It sure is easier to believe that a tank full of gas is more important than a stomach full of food. And we have a way of avoiding that which is unpleasant. Sociologists said that we have developed in affluent America what they call the lifeboat ethic. This proposal has you to see affluent Americans in a lifeboat and those who are drowning of starvation are trying to get in. But if we let them in the lifeboat, that is, if we share our resources with them, we might all drown. So the safest thing is to roll away. But I tell you, the people of the Scripture can't close their eyes to such pictures of horror. God has not blessed us in order that we might hoard these blessings to ourselves. The ringing call of the Scripture is that we feed the hungry and we clothe the naked 
And no amount of rationalizing or spiritualizing can deny that. We can blame the poor for their plight and ignore the fact that most of those who starve are helpless children. And we can hide our neglect by boasting of our spiritual service and bragging about our great buildings. But we cannot deny the fact that the Scripture teaches that the kind of faith that produces only beautiful words and does not feed the hungry is a dead faith. The irony of it all is that this world is made up largely of those who are weight watchers and those who are starving. And what makes the anatomy worse is that most of us here in this place, perhaps all of us, can better identify with the Weight Watchers than we can with the starving. Who can forget the picture that appeared on Newsweek magazine not long back of the little refugee child with a bloated stomach and a hopeless face and, and broomsticks for hands and arms and the caption under it said, Poor little orphan child begging in the streets of civility Black from the dirt of trampling feet, starving, bloated stomach, begging to eat, crying to the bored ears of civility. J. Winston Pierce is probably one of Southern Baptist's greatest preachers. One morning while he was sitting here in the, on the platform of his gracious church in South Carolina, there the people were, and there was a hushed worship, a sense of reverence and worship. And there the organ was, magnificent organ, playing the offertory. And there was J. Winston Pierce sitting on the platform, getting ready to preach his sermon. And he had his head bowed, and his eyes closed, and he was in prayer. And he said, I sensed a presence before me. My first clue was that I smelled him. He said he reeked with body odor. And when, he said, when, I, when I looked up, he said, I saw him standing there, a derelict, a wino, right in front of me. My first thought was, how did he get in here? I mean, how did he get on our red carpet? You know, what's this man doing here? And he said his hair was disheveled and his clothes were ragged. And when he spoke to me, J. Winston Pierce said, his breath reeked with cheap wine. And he leaned over in my face and said, I am hungry. What the hell are you going to do about it? In probably more profane ways than that, that question is being asked again and again and again. I am hungry. Is there anybody who can feed me? The poor are those who do not have the primary furnishings, food, clothing, and shelter. Who are the poor? The poor are the strapped middle-income families that have a difficult time saying no. That's called secondary poverty. Now, on an objective scale, secondary poverty is nothing like impoverishment indeed. But on a subjective scale, it can hurt and hurt plenty to suffer from secondary poverty. 
Seneca was thinking of this kind of poverty when he said, It is not the man who has little, but the man who craves for more who is poor. The components of secondary poverty are an insatiable desire for more and a hampering disability to say no to seductive advertising. And the people who suffer from secondary poverty, it seems, are people who have a deep psychological need to establish who and where they are by means of visible status symbols. And I think I've just finished preaching and started meddling. Joe Paterno is one of my favorite coaches. Now, if you had a a son who could play football and go to any university in America and play play under any coach, you'd probably want him to play for Joe Paterno, the Penn State Nittany Lions. That's after after Oklahoma, of course, and Barry Switzer. Joe Paterno, a while back, was offered the contract of a million dollars to coach the New England Patriots in the National Football League, and he turned it down. And somebody went up to Joe Paterno and asked him why. This was his answer. He said, it all came down to a matter of values. For money is not the only thing toward which someone should work. Three cheers for Joe Paterno. The people who suffer secondary poverty are made to believe by the Madison Avenue advertisers that the real living takes place somewhere else. I mean, I'm just nothing unless I'm jetting off to Vegas or riding in a sleek automobile or draping my bones with the latest fashions. I mean, to stay at home with your family and have a few uh, little family games and eat together and talk together or sit in church and sing the hymns of worship or or do something kind for someone in need or, or drink a cup of coffee with a friend, why, that's nothing. I mean, the real living takes place somewhere else, and I've got to have that. I believe it was Ernest Campbell who told about the fellow who saved up his money to go on a vacation. He didn't, he, you know, he didn't get to go much, go anywhere much. In fact, he, he and his wife had never had a vacation. And so they saved up money and had a few dollars to go a few hundred miles to Atlantic City. He thought they were just you know, living in, in heaven there. And he got home and, and he met one of his friends and he said, Hey, Fred, where you been? He said, I missed you. He said, I've been to Atlantic City on a vacation. He said, Great place, isn't it? Go there all the time. Hey, Fred, did you eat in Charlie's Fish House in Atlantic City? He said, No, I didn't. I didn't. He said, Man, you haven't been to Atlantic City till you eat in Charlie's Fish House. On down the street, he met another friend. Friend said, hey, Fred, where you been? He said, I've been to Atlantic City on vacation. Great place. My wife and I go up there about every other weekend. He said, hey, Fred, did you go down to one of those showroom auctions on the boardwalk? He said, no, I saw some people going down in there, but I didn't know what it was. We didn't. Hey, Fred, you haven't been to Atlantic City till you've been to the showplace auction." He met another friend. His friend said, where you been, Fred? He said, I've been to Atlantic City on a vacation. He said, great place. Go there all the time. Did you ride one of those bicycles? You rent a bike and ride it down the boardwalk? He said, no. Saw some other folks doing it, but, but you know, n- not me. He said, you haven't been to Atlantic City until you ride a bicycle down the boardwalk. 
He met another friend. The friend said, where are you, Brent Fraser? He said, I, be, I ain't been nowhere, and I ain't done nothing. I mean, all the real living takes place somewhere else. And the classic word of secondary poverty is cupidity. Not stupidity, but cupidity. You look it up in the dictionary. It means lustful desire that's never satisfied. It means an insatiable appetite for more. It means reaching out over and over and over again for something else. They are the poor. That's poverty. I went to visit this little lady in my church in Seminole, Texas, and she literally could never separate herself from anything. String and newspapers and magazines and books and junk. I mean, it literally was stacked to the ceiling of her house. And the way you got around in there was just kind of go down these little trails through her house. It was stacked everywhere. She couldn't throw anything away. And I found that after about three years of visiting her, it was almost impossible to find a place to sit down. For gradually she was being crowded out of her quarters by this vast, meaningless accumulation of things. Do I sound like, does that sound like anybody you know? Is that person familiar to you? Gradually their friends and their family and their God is being crowded out of their life by this vast, meaningless accumulation of things and the insatiable desire to have more. That's, poor, that's poverty. They are the poor. Who are the poor? The poor are those who have made it to the top and have found it empty. That's called the upper poor. Are you familiar with the term promotion anxiety? Promotion anxiety is that mood that attacks us at the point where we get what we've always wanted and found it disillusioning. Are you familiar with that term, that feeling? People who suffer promotion anxiety are the people who have everything they need and most of what they want and yet they're unfulfilled. What a pity. What a tragedy. To buck for a promotion and get it and find it meaningless. What a pity, what a tragedy to drive oneself day after day until he makes a large income and when he gets it, he finds it empty. What a pity, what a tragedy. In my mind this morning, I see them. On that, there's that long line of people going up this mountain. Can't you see them? They're going to the top of this mountain. And there's light in their eyes and there's hope in their faces as they march on in determination to get to the top. It doesn't matter what they have to sacrifice, who they have to sacrifice, what they have to do to get there. They're on their way to the top. And just about the time they're ready for the final assault to the pinnacle, they see another line of people coming down. And they have looks of disappointment and emptiness and frustration and, and discouragement on their faces. They are the people who have been to the top and have found it empty.
And the upper poor are identified for us in the book of Revelation in the Laodicean church. And Jesus said, You say that you are rich and have need of nothing, but I say that you are poor and wretched and blind and naked, upper poverty. And so Alexander the Great was born on one continent and conquered another. And he had the wealth of both the East and the West. But according to his command when he died, his body was carried to the grave with his hands uncovered outside the bier so that everybody could see that they were empty. And the great Charlemagne, according to his own instruction, was buried sitting on his throne upright. There he is. There's his crown. There's his robe. There are his jewels. There's a Bible on his lap. There's his lead finger pointing to Mark 8:36. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? That's upper poverty. They are the poor. And the Spirit of the Lord is on me, for He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Not just one kind of poverty, but every kind. Listen, to those of you who are unable to have the primary functions and furnishings of life, listen, the gospel news, the good news is that God is for you and who can be against you? That God is against the oppressor so you throw off that victim image and you lift up your head and move forward. To those of you who are caught in the painful trap of secondary poverty, who are in this mad dash to gain status and, and acceptance, the gospel news is that you don't have to struggle for rank. God loves you just like you are. You are important to Him. You're a child of the King. Isn't that enough? And to those of you who are suffering from upper, upper poverty, you have everything and you feel that you have nothing. The invitation is still out. Go and sell everything you have and give to the poor. You divest yourself of those things that hold you down and you come and begin this liberating venture of faith as a follower of Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because I bring good news to the poor. Would you bow your heads with me for prayer? Father, in our heart of hearts and in our minds today, we see the hungry of this world. And we see them looking up into the faces of the fed and the clothed. And we hear them say, is there anything for me? And in our minds this morning, we see those of us pastoring into everyone struggling under secondary poverty, wanting more, wanting more. And in our heart of hearts, we hear the Lord say that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. And in their mind we see today those who are the upper poor, 
who have everything and feel they have nothing, who have never given them, themselves to a great cause, who have never sacrificed themselves to a great purpose. And I hear Jesus say to us, to them, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. For I've come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. And I pray that right now we will consider what we shall do with Jesus. And I pray that we'll have the courage to follow him. Now this is our invitation. Invitation number one is for those of you who have never received Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. God offers you the greatest gift, the gift of eternal life. It's not the result of human effort, human skill, human sacrifice. It's the result of the divine work of God that He offers you eternal salvation as a gift. Would you receive that gift by faith? He asks you to repent of your sin, to turn to Jesus Christ in faith. That's the invitation. Children, adults, to come claiming Christ as your Savior, professing your faith in Him. Second invitation is for those of us who are Christians, but whose walk is away off from God. Our hearts have become cold and we're not concerned about the needs of our world and we've given first place to other things the third invitation is for you who need to place your life here perhaps you're a student in college to come transferring your life your membership to this fellowship now these are the invitations and God will give you both the faith and the grace to say yes to him so let's stand. Our choir will lead us in our hymn. We invite you to come.